welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Bernie Siegel, world-renowned surgeon and best-selling author of Love, Medicine, and Miracles. Welcome. Share with you that I'm a portrait painter, and one of the things that happened, because this will make you smile, I have to, we had a house full of pets and five children, so I had plenty of portraits to paint. And I'd come home from the hospital, you know, needing relief. And I'd go in the house, pick somebody out and paint their portrait. Well, one day I driving up our driveway and every animal and child in the house is running away from the house. And I thought, oh, my God, there must be a fire or something horrible. So I yelled out the window of the car. What happened? What's going on in the house? Is there a fire? And I heard a little voice say, no. We're tired of posing for you. We don't want to sit for hours every day. So I said, all right, I'll paint my own portrait. Come on back. And oh boy, they were all thrilled and they turned around and came back. That ended up being a gift because the portrait I painted was of me in a cap mask and a gown, like I was in the operating room. So if you come in the house, you don't know it's me. I'm completely hidden. And that was before I had shaved my head. And I named the painting, The High Priest. And I did that and I thought, people are gonna say, what the hell are you doing that for? You know, is that your ego or what? But I learned later because when I read this quote from Jung, the reason monks shave their head is symbolic of their desire to uncover their spirituality. When I read that, it was like, wow, thank you. You know, then I understood where all that. So I have a period of my life where I call it my cover-up time. And then a period of my life where it was uncovering. And uh, how much you really learn without knowing why you're doing things. But when you learn, you learn a lot about yourself. So 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 I'd like to do today's podcast a little bit backwards. You heard Bernie Siegel's story. And... So I introduce Bernie Siegel to him from my perspective. Um, I read Bernie Siegel's book right after it was published many years ago, I think in the 80s, about love, medicine, and miracles. And it caught my attention because I was just starting my medical practice. And here's this, um, you were a pediatric thoracic surgeon, is that right? Well, general surgeon. General yeah. surgeon, mostly pediatric, so right? Yeah, yeah. And so it was unusual, and it's still unusual, where Bernie had the capacity to connect with his patients in the way is extremely unusual, extremely unique, incredibly powerful. And he eventually went on to form a cancer survivor support group documenting people's really remarkable healings from terminal cancer. And so it was about connection, connection, connection. So what I'm going to talk about today and on the next podcast is that in this modern era, the business of medicine has put doctors on quotas, on profiles, they hire us, they penalize us for talking to patients. I actually have a legally signed document from my hospital telling me to stop talking to my patients. And so they say it takes too much time. It's not normal for a surgeon to talk to his patients. 
So Bernie represents a huge transformation. I'm not saying that other surgeons can't do it, but it's a little unusual for a surgeon to be leading the charge like he has. And so the topic of these next couple of podcasts is about connection, connection, connection. And my supposition has been for a long time that the doctor-patient relationship is not some type of psychological nicety. It's a necessity. It's actually the core of the healing relationship. And without that connection with your clinician, the rest of it doesn't really matter at all, hardly. Let me say this. Part of the reason you don't connect with your clinician is that you don't exist in their life. And I'm not kidding when I say that because I talked about drawings. I had 90 medical students in the class. They invited me to talk to them. I said, draw yourself working as a doctor. And they all drew a picture. And I said, now pass them up to me. 89 drawings had no patient in it. One drawing had a woman sitting in a wheelchair and the student was handing her a tissue. Everybody else, a tissue. Okay. And he's still a doctor, even though he's only handing her a tissue and not writing a prescription. Everybody else had themselves sitting behind a desk with their diploma from medical school on the wall behind them. And one person even drew a picture with no human beings in it at all. Just all the, you know, instruments and drugs and things all piled up. And it blew my mind because I didn't expect that. And uh, that's part of why I began really to change the approach and try to talk to medical students in that same way uh, to understand this is about people, not just the disease. And also, you know, the therapy groups for people. I wasn't a therapist. I didn't know a damn thing about being a therapist. Um, But I had my secretary send a letter to every patient with cancer in our office to say, come to a meeting. And I'll tell you why I started that. I went to a meeting. I think it was by Carl Simonton, but I'm not sure. And I thought this will be for doctors. He's there helping people with cancer, et cetera. I was the only doctor out of about 175 people in the room. I couldn't believe it. And my patients, I didn't realize what a compliment that was. Instead of running to the other side of the room, sat around me. They weren't afraid of me. And one of them literally changed my life with her words. And here's her quote. Because I said to her, what are you doing here? I thought this was for doctors. She said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. That became the goal of my life, to teach people how to live between office visits. And again, the psychological and spiritual stuff, I got back to the office on Monday. My partner, Dick Selzer is his name. He's a very spiritual guy, you know, not a normal doctor, the two of us. <laughs> and um, he yelled at me, you're gone. I said, what the hell are you talking about? I'm gone. He said, you're not the same person you were on Friday. You're going to quit surgery. And I thought, you're nuts. What are you talking about? Well, within about a year and a half or two years, I quit surgery 
and started the support groups and all kinds of things and traveling and speaking. But he was absolutely right. And how can he know from looking at me that I'm not the same person anymore? I mean, all these mystical kinds of events that kept coming up were amazing. And the other thing I tell everybody, if you have a mystical experience, tell everybody. It doesn't matter if they say, you're crazy, that couldn't have happened. What are you talking about? Because when they have a mystical experience, who are they going to be able to talk to? So they'll call you up and say, I got a story to tell you now. See? But if you never share that, they're not going to talk to you. So what did I find at the hospital and in my office? People coming in to the office to say, I know you're not a normal doctor, so I came here to talk to you. <laughs> and, and that included messages from, de you know, dead people. And when I called the family, it was absolutely accurate. You know, the name of the person, uh, what they died of, what they said, it was incredible. And um, so again, you couldn't deny all these things that were happening. And the other was that the women were more likely to join your group and paid you when they were patients at the hospital. You'd come in and they'd say, oh, everybody thinks I'm crazy. I know I can talk to you. Imagine having a heart-lung transplant and going to sleep that night and having the donor, the dead donor, appear in your dreams and talk to you and say, we're together again. My name is... And, you know, she woke up and said that he had visited her and everybody's telling her, yo, you're crazy. What are you talking about? But I said, tell him to tell you his name so we can check obituaries. And he did, he gave her his name. We found the obituary. He died in a motorcycle accident. And guess what this woman had done for the first time in her life, taking a motorcycle ride. Um, so you couldn't deny And She wrote a book called A Change of Heart, Claire Sylvia. There's a, a cover of it on my Facebook uh, site. But again, I never would have learned this if I wasn't a crazy doctor at Yale. And, and again, it was easier to be crazy with, with kids. Right. Because you could be silly. And, uh, and, and see, the kids didn't have a problem with drawings because they weren't worried about being an artist. Right. Imagine coming in and one of the um, anesthesiologists, he got so interested in what I was doing, he made a coloring book of about six or seven pages for the kids. And on each page was a description of the drawing. The first page said, you'll meet someone called an anesthesiologist who looks like he's wearing a pajamas, green pajamas. And the kid drew him in red. And the anesthesiologist brought me the drawing. I said, that means he knows there's a significant danger in the operating room. So if the last page he draws himself purple, meaning it's spiritual, I'm gonna die, I'm just sending him home now. We turned to the last page and there was red and black, but no purple. Uh, you know, he's not happy and he's hurting. But the anesthesiologist then said to me, wow. I said, what's the wow about? His mother has muscular dystrophy. If he has her gene, then, the anesthesia muscle relaxants are a risk to his life. He could have an adverse reaction to them. And that's when everybody stopped telling me I'm crazy 
and uh, <laughs> you know, found it fascinating to do these things. Yeah, this illustrates a couple of critical points. Is that there's a friend of mine, Bruce Lipton, who wrote a book called The Biology of Belief. Yeah, and he points out really clearly that all life is just energy and energy fields. I mean, right. every bacteria has energy. It's it goes towards safety and avoids danger. Human mammals, of course, are much more advanced than that. But each atom is almost all space. I mean, we're all, as you, we sit here, look at each other, we're almost all space. And then of course you have radiation from the sunlight. There's energy everywhere, light energy, all this energy, heat, cold, all this is energy. And so somehow we think in terms of concrete structures and none of this is concrete. Even the center of an atom is actually not there. So the reason why it's so dense is the energy is so powerful. So what happens is that we call it mirror neurons or co-regulation. If I walk into a room and I'm upset, the research shows I'll actually stimulate the part of your brain that is angry and frustrated. But they call it co-regulation. But you know, the biologists went to particle physics in the 1920s. Medicine still has not gotten there. And so what happens as you are able to connect to yourself, sort of connect to the energy around you, which now includes your patients, is very powerful. And it's, it's, it's actually the people that deny that they're sort of off base, I think. Well, all these, you know, I remember speaking at Yale again to the doctor's group, and I said, this came from a poem by uh, maybe W.H. Orden, but it said about cancer, it was called Miss G, about a lady with cancer, uh, you know, sees her doctor and then goes home, and the poem is about all this experience for her. But in the poem, it says about cancer, childless women get it, and men, when they retire, it's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. Now, I said this out loud in, at the meeting, and the doctor in the audience yells, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. I said, why would he write it if it wasn't true? Now, it is true. And the other thing that is true is that women with the same cancers as men live longer. Now, what do doctors say? It must be their hormones. No, it isn't their hormones. <laughs> it's their relationship with their kids. I mean, another quote. Right. I have six daughters. I have cancer. I can't die till they're all married and out of the house. She was supposed to die in a couple of years. 20 years later, I got a phone call. My last daughter left home, and that's when her cancer came back. But it's because we create our own internal environment. I mean, Monday morning, there are more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. What's wrong with Monday? Yeah, what you have to do and you don't like. Right. But people have to understand, you know, I mean, I've had so many mystical experiences and I did not seek them out. Um, they happened to me. I know I was a knight in Ireland in a past life. And my name was Brady. Because I, I had this experience. You know, I could say it's like you're sitting in a movie watching yourself. And I went for therapy because it was so traumatic because I was asked to kill the neighbor's daughter because he was imposing and intruding on the property of my Lord. 
And I said, why don't I, why don't I kill him? What? He said, no, I want you to kill her, teach him a lesson. I said, what if I don't? I'll kill you. So I went and killed her. And to make a long story short, guess who it was? It was my wife <laughs> and in this life. And I cried for, I mean, literally hours. It was so much grief in it. And I went for therapy. And as soon as I started telling the story, the Jungian therapist said, do you hear what you said? What? Your Lord. I said, yeah, I've always thought about that. How did Jesus and Abraham not argue with the Lord? And why didn't Jesus jump off the cross? He's got incredible powers, you know. But I learned if I had said yes, he said to me, relive it. So I said, yes. And then my Lord said, all right, go there and tell them I need to talk to them. And I went, convinced the young lady that if I could talk to our father, if he would come, we could all get along with each other and work it out. And they came with me back to my Lord. And uh, the end of the situation was I married the young woman we got the Lord, I mean, the land as a gift and nobody died uh, due to anything. And, you know, you th have those things happen. I know I didn't dream it or make it up. It, it was just all so real right. uh, to have it happen. And at the time, oh, one more thing, just so people know I'm totally crazy. Because um, when I was three and a half, I had carpenters in our house my parents did, putting nails and things in their mouth. And I'm in my bedroom playing with a toy. So I took it apart and put the pieces in my mouth and then aspirated them and was choking to death. And I want to tell you, if you want to die painfully, die choking to death. My ribs and, you know, muscles were contracting, trying to suck air in, and it was excruciating. And then suddenly I thought, oh, I'm okay what happened was I died. So I didn't hurt anymore. And I realized, no, you're not okay. You're dead. <laughs> uh, and I was out of my body floating around the room, which I thought was wonderful. I mean, you're three and a half years old. Who cares? You know, this is interesting. Um, right. And, uh, oh, it taught me so much about near-death experiences, everything else. But my angel, and I do have an angel, he did a Heimlich maneuver because I'm up in the air floating around looking down at my body and I saw it sort of bounce on the bed and the pieces came flying out of the toy and he took a breath and I got sucked back in and was mad as hell because being <laughs> dead was so much more interesting than being alive and my mother came in shrieking because she saw these toy parts and vomit and knew what had happened oh and she was pregnant that's why I knew how old I was and everything because my sister was about three and a half years older than I was. And my mother was pregnant when she came in. And uh, I realized later it's called the Heimlich maneuver because I saw my body bounce and uh, the pieces fly out. And so, so, Ber so Bernie, you were, you were trained in traditional medicine. I think you mentioned a few weeks ago when we were talking about, right. you know, you had a traditional surgeon saying, fix, fix, fix. And what you're describing, which I have to say in my experience has been interesting, is that 
we sort of get burned down by anxiety and frustration, problem solving, stressed out, whatever it is. So my personal model is we just shut down to what's possible. You know, we, we've shut down the radar to the external world or the energy source. And, you know, I've had lots of, I, I don't think I have quite the stories you do, but lots of things have happening awareness-wise. Even six weeks ago, I had this explosion of awareness for some crazy reason. I just can't put back in the in the bottle. But I'm just curious for... Those of us are, I'm going to go two different topics here, and I'll, I'll talk about the other one on the second podcast, but I guess I want to go back to our original goal here is that it's really critical for a patient to be felt heard by their doctor. I don't have to say that. I mean, that you would agree with that, obviously. So what, and I think the concept, so what, so you had a transition being sort of traditional medical doctor fixing, 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 to being much more open. Can you sort of describe the difference in the two experiences of being more the traditional mode versus the rest of your career? Because for me, it was, it was more than, it was dramatic. Yeah, the, well, one of the things that helped me help people the most, I started saying to people, what are you experiencing? See, not a diagnosis. I mean, I'll give you a couple examples. One was a lady, I'm in the emergency room, yakking away with my patients, and the nurse comes over and says, Bernie, keep your voice down. There's a woman in the next, you know, place next to you who has a severe headache. She's going to be admitted to the hospital, so keep your voice down. I thought, all right, and might as well go and help her. So I went to the next, like, booth. And I went in and I said, let me take you through a little meditation to relieve your pain. I said, first, I want you to tell me what the pain feels like. How would you describe it? And she said, pressure. I said, okay, now let's do a meditation and we'll work on relieving your pressure that's in your life. And after we did it, she seemed more relaxed and I left her, went back to my patient. About 20 minutes later, the nurse came in and said, she's not being admitted to the hospital as they had expected. She's on the way home. It's her marriage. She's going home to straighten it out. Oh, now, I learned to use that in my own life. Years ago, I was traveling around the world, literally lecturing, teaching, doing, and I developed vertigo. And one morning when I got up and I'm busy, I can hardly stand. I said to myself, what, what are you going through? I said, well, the world is spinning around. And I immediately thought, yes, dumbbell, you're running all around the world doing everything. You need to slow down and take it easy. You know, you're hurting yourself. And as soon as I did that, I got everything under control. I stopped spinning around the world. And that impressed me, you know, with the word I used. Right. And uh, with many other people, yeah, one, just people who are listening, get examples. I said to another woman, what's it like? Um, oh, what was the word she used? I, now I can't remember the word she came up with, but I'll think of it. But in her case, it was that 
she had felt unloved by her parents and um, had all these crazy symptoms. But when I said to her, you know, give me a word about what you were going through and how you'd experience it, she blurted out this word and said, oh, because it had to, immediately to do with her family and she knew it. Because a lot of times I don't know what they're saying with the word they use. So I'll say, you know, what does that fit in your life? So they get a focus on it. But in her case, it was her family. And uh, she got up and went home and straightened out her relationship with her family and then everything got better. And it was amazing how people come up with one word answer. And when you say, what's that in your life? They look at you like, oh, thanks. And they'd get up and leave the office to go home and straighten it out. Um, well, I mean, what I try to tell my fellows and people that I train is that I'm going to say something that sounds backwards, but I didn't get into people's troubles. I didn't counsel them. I didn't get enmeshed in all this stuff. I just simply asked a simple question. Hey, what's going on? And I had one gentleman whose son had just died. That was pretty clear what was going on. I had another guy whose grandson had shot his son, the, the grandson had shot his father, who was his son, paranoid schizophrenic. So it wasn't neck pain, that was stress. So it took it takes about two minutes to ask a simple question, hey, what's going on? I had another woman signed up for surgery in the hospital. She had a big bone spur, C5-6, perfect surgical lesion. And I found out that her father had died three weeks earlier. I go, okay, we'll do the surgery, but we're just gonna wait six weeks, let things calm down. She never went to surgery, everything calmed down. And so in medicine, we're making, we, we get a symptom and we just don't get any background to these symptoms anymore. And it's such a, and I think it, I don't, I don't want to, I'm going to sound dramatic here, but to me is the standard of care includes listening to your patients. Right. Right. Yes. They, I mean. It's not, it's not, it's not a luxury. Yeah. See, what I would say to people is. How would you describe what you're experiencing? Right. Not whether you had a heart attack or cancer or the colon, but what are you, you know, experiencing? And those feeling words were always about the diagnosis. And I would, you know, then bring up in their life what was going on that would affect this kind of thing. And they would look at me like, how the hell did you know, you know, about my life or what was going on or, uh, but it was amazing. And that's what slowly in the hospital, uh, let things that I was doing become accepted instead of crazy. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you have to know that I acted crazily. I mean, you're in the operating room. Your patient has a cardiac arrest. The anesthesiologist said, I can't resuscitate him. I'm going to go get a stretcher to take him to the morgue. So what do I do? I yell out loud in the operating room. Johnny, it's not your time yet. Come on back. <laughs> and his heart started beating again and he recovered completely. What did the anesthesiologist say? I like working with you. <laughs> well, the thing is, what's so interesting about what's crazy right now in medicine is that essentially nothing we do is based on data. 
We don't have any data to do what we're doing. We're treating only symptoms. We don't know our patients. We don't know their coping skills. And so instead of helping patients heal, we're actually rushing them through treating symptoms and making, making them feel less safe. So I think right now the way, I'm not going to blame the doctors as much as the business of medicine. Patients don't real, really feel safe and connected with their doctors and doctors don't feel that connected with their patients. And that's still at the very, very core of healing. It's not a luxury. I mean, I've learned if I ask people, how would you describe your pain? It was always about something to do with their life. Right. So they could say, it feels like I fell down and injured my leg. It feels like I got a knife in my leg. You know, whatever their description was, I'd say, how did those words fit your life? And boy, their eyes would light up then. And a lot of times they'd walk out of the room saying, thank you, we're gonna go home and fix everything. Um, but it, it was amazing how much that meant to them when you brought that you know, symptom up. And I know in my own life, when I was literally traveling around the globe, lecturing and teaching and trying to help everybody, um, I developed vertigo. I mean, I was having trouble just standing up. And I thought, stupid, this happened to me one morning. I'm having trouble getting out of bed and standing up. And I finally said to myself, hey, stupid, why don't you describe the symptom and then ask where that fits your life? And I said, well, the world is spinning around. And then I said to myself, yeah, you're doing too damn much. You're traveling all over the globe, running around, helping people. And so you got a wonderful symptom now that's keeping you in bed so you don't have to go do all those things. And as soon as I got that straightened out, boom, you know. No, it's amazing. The body responds really clearly. So Bernie, yeah. um, I wanted the next podcast to go a little bit more into the drawings stuff that you talked about, which I think are really, really profound. But um, I just wanted the biggest part of the conversation today, which you illustrated really nicely, is that you got to know you have to know your patient. You just have to. Really, really critical. So, Bernie, I know your um, you your books are still in print. Um, one is Love, Medicine, Miracles, and there's another one that you wrote on the picture drawing. What was the second book that you wrote, which I thought was so fascinating? I don't have. Well, uh, oh boy, Love, Medicine, Miracles, Peace, Love, and Healing. Yeah, that's how to one. live between office visits. Right. Uh, I, I mean, they the drawings you know were put into all of them. I forgot if there's a book, um, The Art of Healing. I'd oh, see. right, that's, that's where, what we're going to talk about. Yeah, so, so literally drawings, right? And and Bernie, Bernie has a website. He he puts out regular newsletters and the books are on the website. So, um, Bernie, what's your website? BernieSiegelMD.com. BernieSiegelMD.com. Yeah. And let me say this. I, I mean, I started doing these things because I brought them into my own life, too. Right. In other words, I learned from what I did. And I thought, OK, then why don't I ask my patients to do this? Right. Because I had faith in what I was doing because of what it taught me. Um, 
and therefore I knew it was true. You know, it wasn't something I was fixing or making up or anything else. So right. you do it with yourself and your family members and your patients in the office, and you can see that the truth is there. People know what's going on in their body and their lives. Um, and once they put it on paper and you bring up these things to them, they know you're not criticizing them, that you're trying to help them and show them which things are affecting you and making a difference. Right. Well, Bernie, thank you again. I always enjoy talking to you, as you well know. And uh, thank you. Thank you. And, and I'd say to people, uh, it's a wonderful way of learning about yourself. Do a drawing. So, okay, um, we'll talk about that in a few Yeah, minutes. I mean, have a box of crayons because every color has meaning. See, right. these are the things I began to learn. Um, in other words, yellow is energy. Black is grief and despair. So if you draw your treatment in black, you are in for big trouble with right. side effects and everything else. And on the other hand, if you change your picture and your attitude, differences begin to happen. But right. you see, those things are so interesting. The criticism in the hospital stopped because everybody saw these amazing, you know, drawings with crayons that I did a lot of children's surgery. So we had no trouble getting drawings from the kids. And then adults would start doing the drawings. And what a difference it made because it was there. You could see it. And, uh, you know, it wasn't that the patient was told what to draw or anything else. What I really want to highlight is, you know, Bernie really highlighted something in his book, The Art of Healing. Um, was it, I'm sorry, The Art of, what was it? Yeah. Anyway, so um, Bernie has a lot of stories that's remarkable. It's actually a diagnostic tool. So anyway, Bernie, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Bernie Siegel, for being on the show today and for sharing his insights into the importance of the doctor-patient relationship and helping individuals tap into their own innate capacity to heal. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.